1: You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle, find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
2: Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet bringing the world's top experts right to you. Introducing your hosts, Matt Bodner and Austin Fable.
0: Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we bring on innovation expert Sunil Gupta to discuss how you can make you and your ideas backable. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word smarter. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we brought on one of the fathers of decision-making psychology to discuss several fascinating takeaways about how to make better decisions with our previous guest, Robin Hogarth. Now for our interview with Sunil. Sunil Gupta is a teacher of innovation at Harvard University and is the author of the book Backable, where he explores how to get people to believe in your ideas. Sunil's ideas have been backed by firms like Greylock and Google Ventures. He served as an entrepreneur in residence inside Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield and Byers. The New York Stock Exchange named Sunil the new face of innovation, and he's personally backed startups, including Impossible Foods, Airbnb, 23andMe, Calm and SpaceX. In 2019, Sunil established the Gross National Happiness Center of America in partnership with the Kingdom of Bhutan. Sunil, welcome to the Science of Success. It's great to be here, Matt.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, we're super excited to have you on the show today. You know, you have such an incredible background and have done so many interesting things. And I'm really excited to explore that and dig into some of the lessons from Backable.
2: Fantastic. Well, no, hey, I'm a big fan of the show and looking forward to digging in with you. So I'd like to start with. Just
0: given all of the fascinating things that you've worked on and been involved with, tell me a little bit about the genesis of Backable and how you really started to piece this idea together.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I have found now that authors tend to start from one of two points. Either you have a solution or you have a problem. I certainly had a problem, which was that, you know, I found myself in all sorts of different situations where I was trying to convince people of an idea or to take a chance on me personally with the job opportunity and just not having any luck. And at the same time, I was finding that there are people who I now call backable people who tend to be able to walk into a room And they convince us to take a leap of faith on them, even when they're not the obvious choice, even when they don't have the obvious idea, we tend to want to rally around them. And the reason that I became very interested in this topic, it all kind of, you know, came together in a moment where I was asked to be a speaker at a conference called FailCon, which stands for Failure Conference. And let me just tell you, Matt, it's a humbling experience when someone calls you and says, hey, we're doing this conference on failure and we would love for you to be the keynote speaker. I accepted the role, and I'm on stage, and I'm giving this talk on all these things that I had messed up in my career. And I didn't know this at the time, but there was a reporter from the New York Times who was in the audience. So fast forward to a little while later, I'm in my apartment, and I opened that day's New York Times to a full-length story on failure with my face As the cover of this story,
0: that's amazing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and and this is 2013 timeframe, and you know that story goes viral because failure was a topic that hadn't really been talked about as much up until that moment, but it was really starting to sort of enter the zeitgeist, and that article became one of the ways that it did, and and so it became so popular that literally there was a time when you could have searched for failure on the internet, and my face would have been one of your top search results. And I think when something like that happens, you kind of have two choices. You can either sort of hide from it or you can embrace it. And a friend of mine convinced me to embrace it. And the suggestion that he had was, why don't you start emailing this article out to people who you're trying to get meetings with who have been you know, up until now unresponsive? but use this as an icebreaker and see what happens. And so I did. I started emailing people and I would say in the email something like, hey, as you can see, I have no idea what I'm doing. Would you be willing to grab 15 minutes with me over the phone or grab coffee? And the response rate, Matt, to that email was insanely high. I found that people, you know, not only were they willing to chat with me, but they were willing to open up to me. These were honest conversations. And that really laid the foundation for this book, which was, you know, spending now the past five years studying backable people from all different walks of life, from Oscar winning filmmakers to celebrity chefs to military leaders to founders of iconic companies, and really starting to realize that in the vast majority of cases, none of them were born backable. There was a set of techniques, a set of adjustments that they made to their style. And that's good news because that means that any of us can make specific practical adjustments to our style to make ourselves more backable.
0: And you touched on something just now and, and earlier as well that is such an important piece of this, which is that being backable, when you see maybe your background or even just the title, you think initially about raising money for startups. So at least personally for me, that's kind of the immediate thing that yeah. came to mind. But really this is a universally applicable yeah. skill set i mean in any field anything you're doing with your life yeah you can exponentially increase your ability to be successful by getting people invested in you and what you want to achieve
2: yeah yeah such a good point i really think it comes down to change whatever type of change you are trying to create that can be with your own career That could be with your community, that could be with your company, whatever type of change it is that you're trying to create. We never do it alone. We need teams, we need colleagues, we need hiring managers, we need bosses, we need investors, we even need friends and family. And so how do you get people to see in your idea and to see in you what you see in yourself?
0: So this likely dovetails with this, but I'm curious, what were... The people you started to study and uncover and see across a wide spectrum of activities and industries, what were some of those commonalities that you witnessed around what made them backable?
2: Yeah, you know, so what I tried to do was run everything that I was seeing through the obviousness filter. Like there there were certain things like, you know, you need to be somebody that people trust, for example, something that somebody has perceived trust at least. But but that's kind of an obvious quality and and, and I tried to really focus on the things that surprised me. And ultimately it came down to seven surprising qualities. And, you know, what I did in the book was I really tried to break those into specific steps then, specific techniques. So, you know, for example, one of the qualities that surprised me early on was this idea around conviction. What I expected to find when I started researching this book is that backable people in large were going to be charismatic folks. They were going to have a high degree of charisma. But the more that I dug in, the more people I spent time with who were extraordinary the more I realized that that's really not the case. Sure, there are people out there who are highly charismatic that are backable, but I was finding that actually the majority of them were not. Many of them were shy. They were introverted. By the way, if you want a quick example of that, just very quick, go look up the number one most popular TED Talk of all time. And what you might be surprised to find is a very un-TED-like presentation. It's a guy named Sir Ken Robinson. The talk has over 65 million views. It's an incredible talk on education. But he sort of has one hand in his pocket. He meanders on and off script. You know, he naturally walked with a bit of a slouch. But it's an incredibly powerful talk. What I found is that it's not charisma that makes a person convincing. It's conviction. Backable people take the time to convince themselves first. And then they let that conviction shine through with whatever style it is that feels most natural to them. The fundamental idea of being here, Matt, like if you don't believe, they can't believe. If you don't fully believe what it is that you're saying, then no PowerPoint slide, no hand gesture, no level of eye contact is going to make up for that.
0: Such a powerful insight. I'm curious, how do we start to either uncover conviction within ourselves or get convicted about something that we're not sure about.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think it really begins in a moment that I think a lot of us are are very familiar with, which is that you're with friends or you're with colleagues and all of a sudden an idea strikes, like you get inspired by something. And typically what ends up happening in that moment is that we end up blurting that idea out. And then we sort of look around and we realize that no one is quite as excited about that, what we just said, as we are. And when that happens, it can be very deflating. It can be a very deflating moment. And most of us, what we find, will then take that idea, we'll put it in a mental drawer, and we'll sort of walk away. You know, one of the things we found when we were looking inside big companies, back to your point, this isn't just for entrepreneurs, but we were really interested in how do ideas really flourish within larger organizations. One of the things we found is that most great ideas, I mean, the ideas that companies and organizations regret having not done were already there. They were already floating around the companies, but they weren't killed inside the pitch room. They weren't killed inside formal meetings. Those ideas tend to be killed inside the hallways. They get killed inside parking lots in casual conversations where like you share it with somebody who's a friendly, you know, and they don't give you the reaction and you kind of get deflated and you walk away from the idea. So getting back to that moment, when you start to think about this moment of inspiration, what backable people tend to do is they almost form this very, very simplistic decision tree in their heads, which is, okay, I'm inspired by this. Is this an idea that I have high conviction for or a low conviction for? One way to think about it, is, is this a peanut M&M or is this a chocolate M&M? A peanut M&M is not a piece of steel, but you can squeeze it and it won't crack immediately. Or as a chocolate M&M, you, you squeeze it just a little bit and, and it cracks. You don't want to share a chocolate M&M. With people because it's going to crack immediately and it's going to be a deflating experience. So what backable people tend to do is they say, if it's a chocolate M&M, I'm not going, I'm going to resist the impulse to share this idea right now. And I'm going to take what we call in the book incubation time. Now, Incubation time is where you put the peanut inside the idea. And there are lots of different styles for how people like to spend their incubation time. Some people like to draw things out. They're more artistic. Some people like to talk it out with literally themselves through a recorder or, or, or they film themselves on their laptop. I'm a writer. I like to write my ideas out. So I literally start out with just blank pieces of paper. And I know you're a journaler as well, Matt. I am too. And I literally just try to just start writing my idea. And there's a couple of key principles, I think, when you're spending this incubation time for building conviction. One is that you want to allow yourself to kind of wander a little bit. Oftentimes when we're at the early stages of an idea, we tend to fall in love with a solution. But what we found is that backable people tend to fall in love with a problem, not necessarily falling in love with a solution. And if you fall in love with a problem, what that allows you to do is it allows you to wander in different directions. So as you start to journal your idea out, you may end up finding that it morphs into something else. If you're rigid about your solution, you're going to shut those patterns off. You're going to shut those possibilities off. But if you're in love with your problem, you're going to follow those through. And what we find over and over again is that most great ideas Or sort of a morph of something that started out. It started out a little bit different. Usually not a lot different, but a little bit different. You know, IDEO, the company will go into sort of their consulting, you know, arrangements with companies. And one of the first things they'll they'll have people do sometimes is they'll say, you know what, you guys have an idea right now. Why don't we come up with eight alternatives to your idea? And typically their clients are like, no, 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 we have the idea. We know what it is. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, but let's just spend 20 minutes coming up with eight alternatives to that idea, and just see what happens. And so finally they do, and what they say is that almost always one of the eight ideas ends up being the thing that the room gets most excited about, even though they came in with a very different concept. So again, allowing yourself to wander. The second thing is that you want to not just during this incubation time, you don't just want to steer into why this idea is exciting to you. You want to also steer into why this idea might be objectionable. In the book I call this steering into objections. So taking off your excited hat, putting on your critic hat, and thinking to yourself, when I ultimately share this with my colleagues or my friends or whomever I'm going to share this with, what are going to be the top two or three things they're going to bring up? And you want to write those down and you want to start to answer those. Now, most people are afraid to do this. And the reason for that is because we know that we won't have perfect answers. But the reality is that when you're trying to create something new, You're very rarely going to have perfect answers to those questions. There's always going to be open questions. If if there weren't, it probably wouldn't be a new idea. But just the ability to have a back and forth, just the preparedness of like, I have thought through what they're going to bring up, then I'm able to have a conversation about it. Gives you that level of conviction that you need to walk into a room. On the other hand, if you walk in sort of crossing your fingers, hoping they don't bring something up. You can never have the conviction that you need to create a backable moment.
0: Those are great insights, and especially this notion that we should have, be okay that our answers aren't perfect. To me, that's so important to really understand, even in the early genesis of an idea, that you have to have some level of comfort with ambiguity to be yeah. able to, to bring something into the world.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, in some ways I have found that that ambiguity is what creates conversation because these backable moments, whether it be a pitch or a presentation or an interview, they're very rarely a monologue. You know, you don't walk in, recite your resume and walk out of the room. It's a series of interactions and it's the ambiguity that ends up creating interesting conversation where again, it's not just you reciting your idea or your resume, it's you engaging the other side of the table. And when there's some ambiguity, you actually have something to talk about.
0: Yeah, I really like that insight a lot. In some senses, doing that a little bit of that work in advance almost reminds me of the concept of a pre-mortem or even the military conception of red teams that essentially beat ideas up and try to figure out why things are gonna fail. Just those concepts, I find, to be really fascinating ways to improve your own thinking. And as you said, if you're falling in love with a problem instead of falling in love with a solution, you create more space for yourself to not have your ego be tied up in whatever the definitive outcome may be,
2: if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally does. And I, and I love the way you phrase that, too, because it is about ego. Oftentimes we come up with an idea and then we get married to it and then our identity gets wrapped up in it. And then anything that sort of kind of starts to even bend it a little bit, we kind of resist that. And it's amazing how quickly that can happen. You know, where all of a sudden we almost feel married to something. And so I, I do think it takes deliberate practice But it's so important, which is to say, it's it's almost in some ways to catch yourself in these moments of excitement and say, all right, but let me just unwind this a little bit. What was the problem that I was trying to solve? What exactly am I trying to get at here? And just allowing yourself to have the space and flexibility of knowing that your answer, that thing you're excited about, is probably one of many different ways to tackle that. And maybe it's the best, but maybe it's not.
0: This is a corollary of that, but how do you think about the balance between being really convicted on an idea versus having the intellectual humility to change your mind or abandon it and move in a different direction?
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That is such a powerful question. I don't think that you can be a hundred percent convinced about anything. I think, well, you know, I don't find that backable people usually are, but I think what they're convinced about is that there's a real problem to solve here. Like they're convinced that the insight that they have found is solid. You know, one of the chapters that we talk about in the book is this idea of finding an earned secret, finding an earned secret then I'll tell you a quick story. I was in the waiting room of a guy named Brian Grazer, who's a Hollywood producer. You know, he's won like 130 Emmys, dozens of Oscars, but he also invests in companies and he runs large teams. And so as I was sitting in his waiting room, this is, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, I was surrounded by people who were there to pitch him on all sorts of things. And you could just tell that the anxiety in the room was really, really high. Like people were nervous. And so when I went back to see Brian, I said to him, "Yeah, hey, you have a room full of nervous people out there. If I could have given them like one piece of like one piece of advice before they pitched you on how to pitch a guy like Brian Grazier, what would it be? What would that one piece of advice be? And he thought about it for a moment and he said, give me something that I can't find easily on Google. Give me something that's not easily Googleable." And I thought that was so interesting because as I talked to more and more backers, more and more decision makers, what I realized is that great presentations, great pitches, great interviews tend to be based on a hidden insight. They tend to be based on an earned secret, something that you have gone out into the field and you have found and you realize like, hey, this is something that you know, is somewhat surprising. Like most people in my shoes don't really know this. And I'm going to bring that into the room and I'm going to build my idea on top of that. And so getting back to your question about like conviction and humility, I think what we're talking about is really conviction on the problem, but leaving the solution somewhat flexible so that the people on the other side of the table can really get involved. I know, you know, one of the concepts, Matt, you and I were talking about before the show was this idea of flipping outsiders into insiders. And that's where that comes in.
0: I definitely want to dig into how to flip outsiders into insiders. But Before we dig into that, I want to unpack a little bit more this idea of earned secrets and hidden insights. Yeah. How do you think about, when I think about just for myself, if I wanted to create an amazing pitch or presentation, I would love to always have a hidden insight, but I may not necessarily. How do you think about sourcing those or finding them or earning those secrets in some sense?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, when we unpack what an earned insight is, it is an insight, but I think half of it is the charm of your story and how you put yourself out there. You know, like when I talk to people who invested in Airbnb early, you know, Brian Chesky, the co-founder and his co-founders didn't necessarily come up with anything that I think was sort of mind blowing. But I think part of what it is that really charmed investors was that they were renting out their own apartment. And they were actually having you know, real people stay at their place. And they were understanding what that experience was like and, and how it could be better. If you look at TaskRabbit, Leah Busky, the founder, was cleaning homes and collecting insights. If you look at Lyft you know, the founder of Lyft was driving passengers around. Logan Green was carting the first passengers around himself. Then he was taking notes and he was bringing those notes into the meeting. And so I don't think it necessarily always has to be earth shattering, but I think half of it is you putting yourself into the story. Like you didn't sit behind a desk. You didn't do research the way that most people would. You went above and beyond. I'll tell you, I'll give you an example that's non-founder, non-tech founder, ish, which is that, you know, a few weeks ago, someone had approached me because she was applying for a job at a social media company and she was a mother and she was returning to the workforce. And, you know, she was trying to figure out like what this company was all about because she didn't actually use the product, but she did something really interesting that most people in her shoes would not do, which is that she interviewed every single one of her daughter's friends. All of her daughter's friends use this product. And so she interviewed all of them and she asked them what they liked and what they didn't like. What were these moments in their experience that they found most compelling? And then she did something. She had them send her screenshots of these moments in their experience. So then she goes to this interview, which is over Zoom, and she pulls out her phone in the middle of the interview and she starts showing this hiring manager some of these insights that she collected, this gallery of screenshots. Well, this hiring manager is so impressed that not only does she get the job, but he actually, in the middle of the interview, patches in one of their UX designers to look at some of these insights that she's collected, these moments that may not actually be on their radar, these little opportunities. And so I don't think it takes a lot. You know, when I asked her, like, how much time did all that take you? She's like, less than two hours, less than two hours of research. I don't think it takes a tremendous amount. But I think that, you know, it begins with being willing to go do things again. Like the way that I would approach it is really two steps. What would most people, step one is thinking, what does most people do in this situation? What would most people do? And then the second is going and doing at least one step beyond that. That could be talking to customers. That could be test driving a competitor's product. That could be attending an obscure meetup online. But doing something that most people in your shoes would not do.
0: What a great story, and it really showcases that it's all about just putting in a little bit of extra effort, going one step further, and you mean you've shared some great examples of that already, but I think that that really crystallizes how you can start to generate these personalized and unique insights that can help take something that may have been one-dimensional and make it three-dimensional.
1: Yeah.: OK, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. And I think people, the book came out a few weeks ago, and and this has been one of the concepts that people have gravitated to the most. You know, one of my favorite stories from the book is about Betty Crocker and Betty Crocker in the 1940s introduced instant cake mix to the market. And they believed that instant cake mix was going to be a smash selling product. And so they were stunned. The executives at Betty Crocker were stunned when they found out that instant cake mix just was not selling. And they could not figure out why. And so they hire a psychologist named Ernest Dykta to go out into the field and start doing interviews with customers. And so Dykta comes back with a recommendation, an insight that was really, really surprising. He says, I think you have made the process of making a cake too easy, too simple, because all the customer has to do is pour water into a mix. Pop it in the oven and voila, there's a cake. But when the cake comes out of the oven, they actually don't feel a sense of ownership over it. They actually don't feel like they really made that cake. So Dykta had a recommendation. Why don't you remove one ingredient, one key ingredient and see what happens? And so they do, they remove the egg. And so now as a customer, you have to buy and crack and mix in your own fresh egg and sales completely take off. Because now when the cake comes out of the oven, people felt like they had an ownership over it. And look, researchers and scientists have unpacked this theory over and over again and proven it in different ways. A group of economists out of Harvard called this the IKEA effect, which basically tells us that we place up to five times the amount of value on something that we help build than something that we simply buy. And so there are a lot of people out there with poorly made futons and furniture that they're probably not going to get rid of because... They built it themselves. And so what does this have anything to do with creativity or innovation? Well, we've kind of been told that it's a two-step formula, right? You come up with a great idea and then you execute on it really well. But there's a hidden step in between. And that hidden step is where we take early employees, early colleagues, early partners, just early friends, and we make them feel like it's their idea as well. We give them an egg and we allow them to crack that egg into the mix so that by the time the cake comes out of the oven, by the time we reach execution phase, they actually feel like it's their cake as well. And I believe, like, I really I believe you can trace any successful organization, any successful political movement, any successful product initiative back to that hidden step. It was never just one person. Oftentimes we will give the credit to sort of one leader. But the reality is it was when we sort of you know, unwind the clock and we go back in time and we look at how it was really formed, it was a group of people who felt the same founder level passion over that idea as the person who came up with it in the first place.
0: How do we practically start to think about getting those early team members bought into the vision and yeah. telling a story that's collective as opposed to about you and them, if that
2: makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I love by the way, I love the way you frame that, like the collective story, because that's exactly what what it is that we're doing. You know, I, one of the people I talked to for the book was the head of the MacArthur Foundation, which gives the genius grant. And the genius grant's a like six hundred and fifty thousand dollar grant to some, you know, really amazing people, like mm-hmm. Lynn Manuel Miranda, the creator of Hamilton, is a genius award recipient. And I asked him like, how do you go about selecting people for a grant like this? And one of the things he said that was really surprising to me is that if you are somebody they're considering, and you are already on a very, very clear path to success, to achieving what it is that you want to achieve out of life, that will actually make you a less likely candidate for the grant. Less likely, not more likely. And I was like, why? He's like, well, you know, as a foundation, we want to have some influence on your success. We want to actually know that you know as a result of what we did for you as a result of what we were able to provide for you, you were more likely to achieve what it is that you were trying to achieve and he was offering me this perspective from the foundation, but he was saying, look, I mean, this is really how we operate as human beings, right don't we all want to know that we made a difference? Don't we all want to know that we made some kind of mark on the things that we're getting involved in and It's true. And yet, if you look at the way that we approach most presentations or pitches, the way we approach most audiences, we very much, the most of us, very much like to tell the story of me, the story of my idea, the story of my resume, the story of my vision. Whereas what backable people tend to do is they tend to tell the story of us, how my idea and your idea or who I am and who you are come together to create something bigger Right. One way to think about that practically is like, look, I have you know if I have an idea that I'm selling, right? I have most of the ingredients of this idea. But as it turns out, you know, the one thing that I'm missing or the couple things that I'm missing happen to be the areas that you are an expert in, right? And if we were to combine together, if you were to crack your eggs into this mix, we would make this really, really beautiful cake together. Right, but again, most of the time we don't approach it that way because we feel like we need to walk into these meetings with bulletproof, bulletproof answers or a bulletproof plan. But when we do that, we often shut people out of the creative process. So one of the very specific things that we talk about in the book is how to share just enough. Don't overshare, at least not in the beginning. Oftentimes, I'll see teams walk into meetings and they'll share like ninety percent upfront and then they'll save 10% for Q&A. My advice is now to reverse that. Share the 20 to 30% up front, right? Just share it just enough where you can get the, again, the problem that you're trying to solve, a high level of the vision, and then open it up to the room for this conversation and let the creative possibilities that come up get folded in. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, Matt, that like you come in unprepared. It doesn't mean that you've only prepared 20 to 30% of your presentation. You're gonna sort of wing it for the rest. As it turns out, it takes a lot more preparation to have a discussion than it does to have a monologue or to have a presentation like you need to be able to react to what's coming up you need to have studied all corners you need to be able to you know engage in questions which as we know it's much more difficult to ask the right questions sometimes than it is to give the right answers so it's an engagement a back and forth that it all begins with sharing just enough and not too much
0: what a great perspective on that that it takes more preparation to have a dialogue than a monologue that's a really good and slightly counterintuitive frame that Really shines light on this idea, and I think broadly, this whole perspective is is a really cool way to think about applying the IKEA effect in a methodology that I'd certainly never thought of prior to you unearthing it. In some sense, this notion of giving the people that you're pitching or engaging with some method to get buy-in into the conversation, right? Give them some space to contribute and feel like they're a part of it, as opposed to just having a one directional conversation.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm sure like, I mean, look, when you were in the process of acquiring the companies that you acquired and and doing all the work that you've done, I mean, I mean, I'm sure you have a ton of perspective on this. I mean, you were engaging with lots of different teams. Did you ever find that that was the the case with that or certain teams that would come in and engage you and say, Hey, Matt, you know, based on the experiences you've had, like, what would your advice be? What would you do in this situation?
0: Yeah. And even just thinking about that, I mean, it almost makes me more bought into the conversation just thinking about it right now. But you're totally right. And this, in some sense, is almost a corollary of another idea that I find to be extremely powerful, which has various names, but I typically refer to it as Socratic influencing, which is basically the idea of instead of trying to convince someone of something, you just ask them questions to get them to come up with the idea themselves. <laughs> and you see massively more buy in from somebody if you approach it that way versus just trying to tell them outright that X, Y, Z. Yeah,
2: it's really interesting. I mean, you know, I love that. And, you know, one of the sort of most common things that I saw backable people do, very practical, but it's interesting how seldom I see it done by others is that not treating, you know, the first conversation as the sell conversation. Instead, having that intro conversation with people where you're just simply asking them questions. What is it that they're interested in? What are the biggest problems on their mind right now? Like, what's keeping them up at night? And then saving sort of the cell for the second conversation, right? I mean, I see founders do this with investors all the time, where it's like, hey, you know, we have this perspective on healthcare, but like, I'm interested to hear like, what are you finding right now? Like, what's fascinating to you? And then taking some of the insights, taking some of those things and folding them into the follow-up conversation. You know, we heard you say this during the last conversation, you know, we did some research on that. And we agree, and here's what we found. And instead of jumping straight to the sale, almost treating it like a one two punch.
0: And I think you can even apply that in a single conversation, in some sense, which I'm a huge fan of. Whenever I meet somebody new, I almost never want to introduce myself first. I'd much rather hear them introduce themselves and ask all kinds of questions. And then once I have all that context, I can really way more effectively tailor my whatever the, you know, my introduction or parts of my background that are the most relevant or personal experiences that tie in with that. And without that context, you're just blindly stumbling into the introduction. You have no idea what's going to be the most helpful pieces of yourself to bring to that conversation.
2: I love that. You know, the other day I spent time with a sales leader who was talking about this product that he's been out there trying to sell. And he's like, it's this product that, you know, has lots of different features to it. And so the way that he would approach his presentations to, you know, potential buyers is he would talk about every single one of these features. So it was like basically a 40 minute presentation talking through each and every feature. And he would just realize that by the end of those 40 minutes, I mean, people's eyes were glazed over. Right. And so instead he kind of took a page, I think out of your playbook, which is in the beginning he'd have them start talking. And then he would ask them like, Hey, you know, we have sort of, you know, five different things that we're hearing, five different types of problems that we're hearing in the market right now. And I just want to go through those five very quickly. He'll he'll, he'll list them off and he'll say, which of those five resonate the most with you, if any? And they'll be like, well, number three, for sure. We're hearing that all the time over here. And so instead of going through every feature, he'll jump right into number three. And he'll talk about how the one specific feature addresses the problem for number three. And, you know, now it's like a 15 minute presentation as opposed to a 40 minute presentation, saving a bunch of room for dialogue. He's gone straight into, you know, responding to what it is that they're telling him is their biggest pain point. And he's like, it was, it became a night and day, you know, result. The number of people who ended up saying yes was just way, way different than it was before.
0: Great example. And it's such a simple shift in perspective, but it can really transform the way you interact with people. Yeah. So I want to explore some other themes from the book because there's so many great lessons here. One of the sections that I found to be really, really insightful was the notion of playing exhibition matches. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. I love exhibition matches as well. You know, it's one of my favorite chapters. And basically exhibition matches are low-stakes practice sessions before you get into a high-stakes situation. And You know, what I found after studying hundreds of backable people is that oftentimes we sort of look at them and we kind of feel like they're naturals. They're just naturally gifted speakers, and some of them are. But in the vast majority of the cases, they were the product of lots and lots and lots of practice. And the reason that that's so deceiving to us, the reason we don't think that it's a lot of practice, is because they almost come off as sort of extemporaneous they almost have an improvisational style to them. So we kind of assume that they're coming up with it on the spot when, again, it's typically because they've practiced so much that they are able to have that natural style. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. These exhibition matches are, again, they can be played. You know, there's a few rules, a few ground rules. But, I, you know, let me walk through just a couple of them for you, like how to play, you know, good exhibition matches. Now, the first is that no venue is too small. Like when you're practicing something, you can practice with anybody. It could be a friend, it could be a colleague, it could be a family member, it can really be anybody. But when you're doing a practice session, you don't want to give the director's commentary version. So what I find that a lot of people will do is they'll be like, you know, in these practice sessions, they'll say, hey, you know, so when I go in the room, this is what I'm planning on doing. And then I'm going to go through this, and then I'm going to go through this section. And they're kind of giving this almost editorial director's commentary. You don't want to do that. And the reason you don't want to do that is because you want to build the muscle memory, the exact muscle memory of what it's going to be when it's in the room. And you can only do that if you're giving them the real version. So that's one really important thing. The second thing is that it's critical when you're doing these exhibition matches to get good feedback. And the only way you can get good feedback is if you ask good questions. And the question that I think is kind of useless that a lot of us tend to ask is, We'll get through a presentation or a practice round and we'll ask the person, what did you think? What did you think of that? But most of the time, especially if we're we're dealing with friends and family, they're going to be nice and they're going to say, yeah, it was pretty good. You know, I kind of like that. That's not very helpful. And so a much more precise question to ask is what stood out to you the most? What of what you just heard stood out to you the most? That's going to give you a much more precise sense of what's landing and what's not landing. Another way to frame that is asking how would you describe what you just heard to someone else. I love that one because what ends up happening is if I'm talking to like somebody like you Matt like who's much more articulate than me, you're going to end up coming up with a way to explain what you just heard in a way that's more compelling than I ever could and I'm going to use it, right? Like when I was starting to write Backable I would go to other authors and I'd say here's my idea and I would explain it in this really sloppy way and then brilliant authors like Dan Pink for example, would be like, well, here's how I describe it. I'm like, my gosh, that's so much better than mine. And I would use it. So asking people, how would you describe what you just heard to a friend is a really important thing. Now, getting back to like the number of exhibition matches, because this is really important. And what I found really surprising, which is that the average person that I studied played about 21 exhibition matches before they got into the room, 21, which I thought was like crazy. Like I thought it sounded way too high. And the thing that I worried about was if you're practicing that much, isn't that gonna make you sound really robotic when you get into a room? Like, aren't you gonna feel very scripted? But what I found by putting this into practice myself was that it does the opposite. Because when you have such a high level of mastery, when you've gone through something 21 times like a new pitch, a new idea, a new presentation, 21 times, you can drop your script. You have it committed to memory. You're no longer like you don't have this background process running where you're like, well, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to say that and I'm going to say that. You can drop all of that and you can be fully tuned in to exactly what's happening in the room. And that's when backable moments happen, when you are completely adaptive to how other people are reacting. You're picking up on signals of like what's landing and what's not landing. You know, Charlie Parker, the great jazz musician had this quote, which basically sums up my entire book. And it's super annoying because like he was getting off a stage and someone asked him this question in like 30 seconds, he gave like a summary, which basically encapsulates what I tried to do in like 200 pages. But what he said was somebody asked him like, Charlie, like how do you have such incredible stage presence? And Charlie Parker said, well, you got to learn your instrument and then you got to practice, practice, practice. And then before you get up on stage, you forget all of that and you just wail. And I love that because in order to forget yourself in that way, in order to fully put yourself in the room, be completely absorbed into what's happening and completely with the people that you're sharing this idea with. You have to have practiced enough to put yourself in that state.
0: It's such an important concept. And I really love that you brought in jazz, both because I'm a fan of Charlie Parker and jazz more broadly, but also just this notion of learning the rules before you can break the rules. And this idea that once you have mastery, then you become an incredible improviser. But until you do... It feels rigid and stiff or scary if you're breaking out of your formula or your framework to start to improvise. But once you have that level of mastery, it's, it's almost beautiful your ability to on the fly adjust and change and pivot little parts of the conversation to tailor it to exactly what the situation requires.
2: Yes, it's so well put. I mean, because like, this idea of like, practicing in order to become a natural doesn't feel right. It feels a little counterintuitive, right? Like you don't practice to become a natural, but the reality is that you do. It's when you master things, then it opens up to this adaptability and this improvisational quality that, you know, like you say, jazz musicians have.
0: And you see it across any field where someone has true mastery. I think you see the same manifestation of that broader principle. Yeah. But, you know, one other element that I found really interesting that, around the idea of exhibition matches, which we've touched on briefly, but was also this notion of being willing to be embarrassed. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, we tend to want to save, I think, our stuff until we feel like we're kind of, you know, we're good at presenting it. We're good at explaining it. And that doesn't give us the practice that we end up needing you know it's amazing how many times i talked to founders i camped out at a venture capital firm for a while a firm called kleiner perkins and i would talk to founders after they left the pitch and you know oftentimes after they sort of gave a pitch that was a little bit lackluster and i asked them about sort of their preparation what do they do to prepare and oftentimes they i found that they were giving that presentation for the very first time to us and part of the reason for that is because, like we don't we we kind of want to like not be embarrassed, right? But what I found is that backable people tend to sort of have this mantra, which i I really try to bring into my life now, which is that long- term success comes from short- term embarrassment. long-term success comes from short- term embarrassment. but but that embarrassment doesn't necessarily need to be in high stakes situations. Like, you don't need to save that embarrassment for. That person who you absolutely need to say yes, it can be in front of friendly people. It can be in front of colleagues. It can be in front of friends. You might as well use that. But I found that you know, backable people tend to embarrass themselves in front of people who they trust. And you know, in particular, when I was studying these backable people, they seem to surround themselves with a circle of people and four distinct types of personalities And I call these the four C's of your backable circle, four different types of people that backable people tend to have. And those four C's are your number one is your collaborator, your collaborator. So this is the person who's like, we brought up jazz. Like This is the person who's sort of almost riffing with you. They're using language like yes, and And we all have a collaborator in our life, right? Somebody who, when we bring an idea to them, they're kind of building on top of it with us. The second is your coach and your coach is different than your collaborator because While your collaborator is really thinking about whether your idea is good for the market or good for the company or community, your coach is really thinking about whether your idea is good for you. Like, does this really fit who you are? Because the reality is that there are plenty of great ideas out there that are great from somebody else. Are you going to want to spend the next several years really sticking with it and going through all the doubt and the rejection and the setbacks that come with trying to create anything new, that's your coach who's going to be able to sort of give you that truth serum of like, this is a fit for you. The third is your cheerleader. And it may sound a little bit sappy, but we all need someone who we can turn to and they're going to build us up. They're going to give us that last bit of juice that we need before we walk into a room. One of the people I studied for the book was this woman named Ellen Levy, who Fast Company Magazine named the most connected woman in Silicon Valley. And I asked her, you have members of Congress in your Rolodex. You have Fortune 500 CEOs. Who do you call before you walk into a big moment? And she said, that, that one's easy. I call my mom. I call my mom before I walk into a room. So you're a cheerleader. The fourth is my favorite. It's the, I think, least appreciated of the circle. But it's your critic. I like to call this person your cheddar. Your cheddar. And I, the reason I call this person your cheddar is because if you've ever seen the movie Eight Mile, Eminem is surrounded by a circle of friends and they're all kind of building him up through the movie. But there's one friend named Cheddar who kind of is always sort of poking little holes in his ideas. And what we find through the movie is that it's really Cheddar that gets Eminem ready for the final stage. And I think the same thing is true in our lives, which is that we all have someone who is kind of more of the sort of person who is willing to poke holes They have our best interest at heart, but they're not afraid to point out our blind spots. And the truth is that this person can kind of be annoying. And so a lot of us will push, you know, that person out. But we know now that like backable people really, really embrace their cheddar. They know that it's cheddar that's going to get them ready for that final moment. So those are the four C's.
0: Great. Yeah. All four of those are fantastic. And I can even just see in my own life, both people who fit some of those buckets and maybe gaps where I could shore up one or more of those personalities and, and surround myself with. And I'm curious, zooming out a little bit, for somebody who wants to start to, to put some of these ideas into practice, what would be one action step from anything we've talked about today that a listener could take today and start to apply to make themselves and, and their ideas more backable?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's, I think it's important for us all to kind of just, you know, look at where we are right now. You know, I think so many people are coming out of the pandemic with ideas. And the thing that I'm hearing more often than not now is like a realization that, you know, what we were doing before may not necessarily be what we want to be doing going forward. And I think for those of us who have been lucky the pandemic has given us a little bit of a pause. I mean, for, for many people, it's just made their lives so much busier. So for some of us, I think it's, it's actually given us a, a bit of a, enough of a pause, we can actually have that moment of self-reflection. And so I think it's really important then to kind of really think about, like, what is it that's holding us back? And I think that it tends to be three words more often than not. And those three words are, I'm not ready. Yeah. I'm not ready to run with that idea. I'm not ready to speak my mind. I'm not ready to step into that leadership role. And the thing that I would leave you with Matt is that like, I have now studied hundreds of extraordinary people. I did it because I had a problem that I was trying to solve, but I really went deep and I understood what made them tick. And and the thing that I found that was common amongst all of them is that none of them were really ready. Three friends from design school were not ready to start Airbnb. A mid-level talent manager wasn't ready to create SoulCycle. A 15-year-old from Stockholm, Sweden, wasn't ready to build an environmental movement. But today, Greta Thunberg is Time Magazine's youngest person of the year. And yeah, there were setbacks, and there were failures, and there were mistakes along the way, but they all tended to play what I call in the book, the game of now. And in the game of now, the opposite of success is not failure, it's boredom. So, I think it begins with understanding what it is that kind of really makes us tick. Using, I think, maybe a little bit of this pause that we've had to find ideas that really make us come alive and then really sort of recruit good people to join us along the ride. Because, I mean, if nobody's ever told you this and you're listening, then let me tell you like, you are ready.
0: What a powerful and, in some sense, freeing perspective that we're both simultaneously never ready and always ready. Yeah, we just have to, to we just have to take the leap and start. Yeah. Well, Sunil, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all this wisdom. Where can listeners find you and Backable online?
2: Yeah. Just go to backable.com. B-A-C-K-A-B-L-E.com. There's some free content out there. It'll be a way for us to connect together and you know, come check it out.
0: Well, thank you again so much for coming on the show. And it's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it.
2: Matt, I really enjoyed that. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the show.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the science of success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out share your story, or just say hi. Shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. everything we discuss and much more be sure to check out our show notes you can get those at successpodcast.com just hit the show notes button right at the top thanks again and we'll see you on the next episode of the science of success look around you can find cars like these on autotrader